three famous guys going incognito on a mission to bring you the most compelling stories. Rags to riches, paranormal activity, comedy, drama, murder, sadness and trauma. It's all right here. This is Three Famous Guys, the podcast where no topic is off limits. And now your hosts, the international men of mystery, Gus, Jim, and Mark. Well, all right, my name is Gus. And Nicole's name is Mark, I guess. You <laughs> cool. all use different names. Uh, what's going on, man? <laughs> Mark, Mark is our uh, infamous traveler. He's uh, in Aruba today. Aruba? Aruba. Yeah, he's traveling. And uh, yeah, so he uh, he thought traveling with his family to Aruba was more important than talking to you. I think uh-huh. so. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, we do have... I'm going to Aruba instead of talking to me any day. So we've been trying to talk to you for a few times here. So uh, uh, third time's yeah, a charm. Yeah, we put it together. Yeah, the first time you were on your way to ER when we were supposed to talk. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, that turned out to be okay. You're 84 years young, so any little uh, thing. Why do we have to talk about that? Well, <laughs> why do we, not, we can talk about that. But uh, I, I saw an interview with, uh, oh, man, some folk singer from my generation. I don't know, last night on TV or a couple of nights ago. And they said he was 79. And so they said, hey, well, you know, you've been singing since you've been 17. You were big in the 60s and the 70s. And now you're 79. You know, what's the difference? And he said, why do we have to talk? Why do you bring that up? <laughs> uh, I, you know, 84 nowadays is uh, is like, I don't know, 20 in dog years. I don't know. I, I just don't understand. Do you, do you see what I'm getting at? Right. It's like the new 30s, yeah. for sure. It's totally freaking meaningless. Right. I don't look like 84. I don't act like 84. There's no... I was just thinking about it last night. The um, the sun go, the uh, the earth goes around the sun once, and that's a year. Right. What does that got to do? <laughs> well, you know, I, I don't know what that put that together, that the sun goes around once, and I'm supposed to be decrepit. <laughs> right. Okay. If you were in Ethiopia, you'd be seven years younger. I got something on my mind about this. So you just opened that can of worms. Yeah. Huh? Sorry for stomping on you, Larry. I was just saying really quickly that if you were in Ethiopia, you'd be seven years younger. Can you? Have you what? Seven years younger. <laughs> no, I. That, that's like yeah, but. You know, logic. That's <laughs> well. You know, before we go on too much longer, our guests are probably in probably wondering who we're talking to. Uh, they know Larry, so I'm just going to give a, a just a little bit of rundown so people get an idea who we're talking to. We're talking today to Larry Hankin. He's a versatile actor, comedian, writer, filmmaker whose career spanned over five decades. While he's appeared in countless films and TV shows, including hits like Breaking Bad, Seinfeld, and Friends, Larry Hankin is often returned, referred to as that guy. The character actor who's uh, always there, but not quite in the spotlight. In his new book, That Guy, The Saga of a Sideman, Hankin shares his journey from struggling actor to Hollywood veteran. Through candid and often hilarious stories, he recounts his experiences working alongside some of the industry's biggest stars, like Robin Williams, Tom Hank, Clint Eastwood, because that's like one of my favorite films in uh, Escape from Alcatraz. So, uh, 
and, and you have a book out, and everybody can see the book that guy in my uh, on my wallpaper. So, Larry, I want to I want to go back just a little bit. When did you get into acting, and what made you go there? I, I can't do anything else. I get fired, or I just talk back, or I don't show up. I mean, I just don't give up. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, I graduated as an industrial designer. That's what all the paintings and all the stuff is about. I, th- I thought it was industrial design. I wanted to go to art school. Uh, and uh, my parents said, oh, industrial design. Let's send them here. And it was all math and engineering and calculus and stuff. It was crazy. <laughs> I got an, an A- minus anyway. <laughs> so... Uh, but I, I, I just, when I graduated with a degree in industrial design, I didn't even go. I didn't go to graduation. Uh, I was, I was a, I'm a big disappointment to my parents. And they're gone now. Right. Well, you, can, you can say they, that now. They missed the big time. <laughs> they, they missed it. Oh, well. Uh, so uh, I said to my uh, buddy, uh, who was in Syracuse at the time, when he graduated at the same time, Carl Gottlieb, who wrote Jaws and all those mm-hmm. mo- other movies, a lot of movies. Uh, so I asked him where he was going because I didn't want to go to Detroit and design cars because that's really what Syracuse and industrial, de- industrial design departments and all the colleges are really like the A-team for Detroit. I mean, that, that's where you want to go. That's where the money is. Uh, anything else is, you know. So uh, I said, "Where well, I don't want to go to, into industrial design. I've been there. I don't like it. So wh- where are you going? He said, I was going to Greenwich Village to be a writer. He's always wanted to be a writer. And I said, okay, you want a roommate? And he goes, yeah, that's cool, because I don't have much money. So we chipped in. And he got a job on a very small newspaper, you know, couple of blocks of distribution that was it a neighborhood newspaper like that's where he started and i was uh, bussing bars from uh, 2 a.m to 6 a.m so that was my college education uh and but i i liked it i thought it was cool it wasn't cool cool but it was better than being in detroit uh, i couldn't even make my half of my half of the ring but i i I never looked back. I didn't think, oh, why did I do it? I loved every minute. I loved every minute of the decision. I I didn't like every minute of the reality, but the decision was the right one. And uh, so I had my nights free, you know, until 2 a.m., until uh, last call. So I would go to the coffee houses. We lived in in Greenwich Village, and it was the 60s. So every major star that you ever bought a record, a book, or loved, or went to see their concert, was in Greenwich Village, unknown at the time. Yeah, Dylan, Peter, Paul, and Mary, Dave Van Ronk, uh, I just, everybody who was famous in the 80s and 90s were in a village in the 60s. Uh, So I would just uh, say, hey man, you know, let me see, I can't play guitar. It was all folk singers and stand-up comedians. No women, no, no women. Nicole. <laughs> and, um, no funny women at the time. Suddenly they got a sense of humor in the, in the 2000s. Uh, so I thought I could do that. I was a funny guy in high school. You know, I was kind of funny in college. And I hung around the drama department because of Carl. You know, show business is writing and writing was where he was at. Right. So I thought, okay, and then I just started to get better. And then I was opening for Woody Allen and uh, Miles Davis and... Playboy Club, and that was another cool trip. And that was my father didn't buy it. Dad, you know, Playboy Club, the Kingston Trio, 
Dad, come on. We, we play Broadway, uh, uh, the committee. Uh, I was in Second City, and then we went to the committee, which is kind of the acting chops that you're asking me about, how to get into acting. I went, uh, I was booed up because I, I discovered critical thinking, you know, George Carlin, uh, Lenny Bruce, Richie Pryor. And the, back in the 16s, that was a no-no. They were just the cops were clobbering poor mm -hmm. Lenny uh yeah okay so anyway uh so the cops were pulling me off the stage and i didn't that wasn't i didn't it wasn't fun would you like it if cops shut you guys down right? <laughs> no you know I, I showed up in a studio not like you know internet cops so uh i I, um, what did I do? We we went to San Francisco with the improv type of stuff. Uh, about five of us, six of us left Second City. Because the cops, I, I called uh, my agent. And I said, I can't do this, man. It's not fun. I just want to make people laugh. And police, it's, and people would come at me with beer bottles in their fists. Wow. Beer Get the fuck off the stage. I'm bringing on the Kingston Trio. I'll never forget that. <laughs> One line from a heckler. <laughs> get the fuck off the stage and bring on the kingston trio there's no like rejoinder there's no and, and a upside down beer bottle in his hand there's no you know snappy comeback for that nice. i got off the stage i mean i got the fuck off the stage it was really so the bartender said what are you doing here you got 10 more minutes was his answer to that situation and i said man did you see that guy he came out with a beer bottle you know thank god you have a big dance floor i had time to get off the stage because you come out of the darkness you know you can't when you're on the stage you can't see the audience and he said yeah i saw that but you still got 10 minutes you know the kingston tree aren't ready to go on stage i said no you know talk to the guy or throw him out i'm not getting back on the stage and so he said well if you don't you're fired and i said no i quit <laughs> he went out. i walked out and uh, so that was the end of my um voluntarily you know there's i i knew that this this doesn't wash in the nightclub world could just right. So I called my agent. I said, "Look, man, I did the cops, and then they just—I just quit." So I, I opened, the, excuse me. I'm sorry, Larry. I did it again. I just want to ask you a question. What, yeah, you got it because I just ramble on. Or ask a question. Oh no, no, you're funny. When the cops would come, why, why were they coming with you at beer bottles? And please, I was talking to. But see, I didn't say it. <laughs> I didn't just say it just to say it. Ooh, hey, mom, look, I'm going to curse right here on stage. No, I mean, it was conversation. It was Lenny. It was Richie. It was George Carlin. It was conversational cursing. Right. It wasn't bad lang. It was just, you know, well, you know, the cops pulled me off the stage and I didn't give a fuck. I mean, that's not cursing. That's like talking. And, <laughs> and so, um, the, you know, so here's where it comes from. I stopped doing the 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 the, the, uh, the Playboy circuit and everything. Well, I mean, Hugh Hefner stopped me from doing the Playboy circuit <laughs> because of my attitude and references to drugs. And then the, I did the Playboy at night, you know, the TV show. Mm -hmm. And I, I wasn't getting high. I mean, I talked about drugs because I was around it. I mean, I was with stand-up comedians and not, not so much them, but musicians and, you know, show business. So I was around it and I just accepted it. I, I wasn't ready for it. I, I got into that 
later. I was a late bloomer. But um, I, uh, I I talked about it on stage. You know, it was part of life. You know, this yeah. is what I did when I was off stage. That, that, that was my material. What I did while I was off stage. You know, like so. Uh, Hugh Hefner just uh, threw me. No, you you can't work on. And also, he saw me getting high for the first time. I the first time I got high, Hugh Hefner busted me for it. I mean, it didn't turn me in, but he said, "Okay, we caught you. you Playboy Circuit out. You're off the the you know the red the regiment, whatever it is, the tour." So I thought. So I joined Second City, and that's how I got into that acting and but what they did was i the the love and spoonful asked me to go on tour with them that so this is where it started with the police so that would have been like back in the late 60s excuse me that would have been back in the late 60s then it was uh late yeah probably the late 60s no just the late 60s right yeah my uncle says uh, it's so, I went on tour with them, and the first venue was a big arena uh, in Washington, uh, Washington University in Louisiana, or one of those, out, uh, Missouri, I think, Missouri. Mm-hmm. And it was a college crowd. It was a college university. And so I got on stage, and I just told a couple of, you know, just clean stuff in the beginning just to see where the audience right. was at. And it was college students, so I just went into, you know, drug, sex, and rock and roll, you know, just talking about it. Not doing it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Huh? So, uh, so when I started talking about, uh, here's what did it. I didn't even cry. I didn't do it. I, they wouldn't let me start. I had a microphone, you know, like a microphone. No, like a microphone. Mm-hmm. So I, took, I said, you know, I'd like to talk about religion now. I was doing well. You know, the laughs were rolling in, bop, 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 bop. And I was opening the Love and Spoonful. And I said, okay. And I got a really big laugh, whatever. And I saw, I said, okay, so now I want to talk about religion. And all of a sudden I heard like, I don't know, maybe 2,000 sphincters just shut <laughs> I couldn't believe it. But the silence was deafening. It really was. They just shut up, man. Oh, wow. I, I love George Carlin for that too. I, I love that. Like, but I was going to say before, my uncle always said, if you remember the sixties, you weren't there. Yeah. Yeah. And well, it, you know, Lenny Bruce and that was the big thing. And now it's politics. You know, yeah. but now, but then it was show business. It was the, the big news headliner. People were getting in trouble and, you know, or getting divorced or doing drugs or whatever. So I thought, um, okay, so I'm on stage and all of a sudden, so I said, you know, what? Because I knew something was wrong. So I said, okay, to the audience, I just stopped my act and I just turned to 2,000 people or so. And I said, what, what, what's going on? They said, do the funny stuff, do this. So I said, no, this is, you know, I'm God. We're going to talk about religion. It's okay. You know, here's this little guy. I'm going to put him on the microphone here. Hey, little guy. You know, where's your clothes? You have no clothes. You know, where are your clothes? And what's that between your legs? That's what picked it up. What's that between your legs? Boo! His, I thought, and I shouted at them. I got really dominated. So I shouted at these 2,000 people. I thought, wait a minute, you people are college students. What do you mean, boo, do the clean stuff? This is sex, drugs, and rock and roll. What's the matter with you people? I did. I shouted at them. You know, and they were just, what? And they shut up. And they listened to me. They quieted down. I, go, I said, look, okay. And they said, do the clean stuff. Do the clean stuff. No, we're going to do, you know, like marijuana and, and sex and religion. We're going to talk about that. No, no, do the funny stuff. 
Okay, okay. So they wouldn't let me talk because every time I would say, okay, boom. But if I stop and say, okay, 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 they would quiet down. I mean, it was like a, it was like a talk and response thing. It was right, almost like right. we were in it together. So I said, okay, I'm going to do the clean stuff. So I did the clean stuff. Now, what I didn't know during this, all this, was the head of the dean of Washington University was in the back. He came to see the Love and Spoon. When I started to do the, the what's that between your legs and i never got any further into the good stuff other than that he called the cops right away the the, the dean from the back so i had said to the audience that okay okay i'll do the clean stuff so i went back you know i have clean stuff too it, i mean it's not like i'm a dirty comedian i just do things that make the audience laugh uh i was doing the clean stuff and the cops but the cops showed up and they came in the back while i was doing the clean stuff i cleaned it up so they just waited because they didn't know they said we well, you know why are we here there's nothing that seems to us so the dean says just wait so the dean had kept them back there so i was doing the clean so after about 10 minutes i got them all back we were rolling along just like in the beginning and then when i got a really good laugh i said okay now let's talk about what's between the guy's legs and they just went <laughs> and they started to pull the armrests off it was an old like an old auditorium the wooden armrests off <laughs> And throw them at me. I mean, they were throwing these armrests at me, and the lights were all the lights went on. And then I I saw the guys in the back, the seats in the back of the auditorium, the students were pulling their armrests off and <laughs> passing them down to the first two rows, who had thrown away all their armrests. So they were being supplied. For, it was like caissons um, rolling down. <laughs> They're oak. If they would have hit me, I mean, it would have been, you know, gone to the. So so that's when the cops started to come down 20, 10 on each aisle, uh, wall aisle, up from each side, and they just tapped me on the shoulder. And I'm going, I, I stopped talking and I just watched. And the, and the audience stopped throwing stuff and they became very good all of a sudden. <laughs> we saw the cops. All of a sudden, right. oh, nothing's happening here, officers. <laughs> no, we're not. Not, not us. Him. So they came up and they just said, let's go. And I said, fine. I mean, it's just because it wasn't this, nothing happening out here, man. Let's go. You know, so we all went back. And me and my 11 spoonfuls say, no, do the dirty stuff because they wanted to riot. They wanted to. <laughs> they wanted to so, no, do the dirty stuff. Do the dirty stuff. And as I came past them, because they were yelling from the wings, do the dirty stuff. <laughs> and I'm, the cops pull me off the stage. And they're, no, no, officer. He didn't do anything. It's them. It's them. <laughs> So they held me backstage. The backstage is empty. There's nothing backstage. You know, just curtain in the backstage. So the uh, 18 cops just split because I think they were embarrassed and didn't know why they were there. They had no idea. Uh, you wow. know, they, I don't. They had no animosity towards me. They just didn't know why they left the station house. They just right. okay, and then they left. And two cops were stationed on both sides of me. backstage. There's nothing else but three people: me and two cops. And they were just there. And I'm standing there, and now the loving spoonful has to set up because, again, 10 minutes, they weren't ready. So they're rushing people, shoving instruments around. And we're just standing there watching. And I go, 
why are you two here? You know, they were just on both sides of it. And they said, we have orders to stay with you until the Love and Spoonful plays their first song so you don't run out there and start doing it again. Because <laughs> <laughs> are you serious? What am I going to go run out there and be setting it? Okay. So I just stood there and they stood there and we stood there silently until the Love and Spoonful's first song started, you know, uh, whatever. Uh, and, uh, and then they just left, you know, didn't even say goodbye or nothing, no handshake, no fist, nothing. Uh, so um, I, that's when uh, I definitely went into the committee in San Francisco and there I became an actor. It's a long story, man. But you helpful. should have tried keeping a box of donuts back there with you. Maybe that would have helped. Uh, but yeah, calm down. <laughs> <laughs> here, here. Houston, here, here. <laughs> but now, is, is, this, is this story in your book? Uh, actually, yeah. I, I don't think it's as funny as what I just said. Probably not. <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> but then, People say that now. Now here's the thing. Uh, what I just told you is the God's honest truth. It happened exactly like I, I said, and what you saw, you know. <laughs> but when you write it down, uh, when I was going through it, it wasn't funny at all. Uh, you know what I'm saying? I, I right, was in the right. moment, and, and uh, I'm trying to be funny on stage. I'm opening for the Love and Spoonful. It's the first of the of a tour, so I'm thinking, oh my God, it's going to go on for the. The whole tour like this? Gosh, every time I hear, no. So that's what I was going to So I explained it, and I explained it to you. Because I was explaining what I And I wrote that in the book. But when I read it in the book, when I read it in the book, you know, to proofread right. it, to get it published, right. I didn't laugh. It was very It's a very serious book. But when other people re read it, they said, man, that's the funniest book I ever read. I didn't write anything funny. So now I read it, you know, with years and years of, because uh, I was in the 70s, something, you know, early 70s, very early. I laugh now. I go, oh, this is really, I mean, who was this guy, this Larry Hankin that was on this tour or, you know, opening for for Hugh Hefner? I, I read all that stuff. I go, man, how naive this kid was. So when you got into acting, what was your very first thing you did? I think it was that girl. Uh, but the one that I was discovered, uh, how, what, what got me started, what what we did was we were in San Francisco and like Second City, and we were as famous as Second City in, in San Francisco. We had lines around the block. We were really cool. I wanted to stay there forever. I'd still be there if I could, right. you know, but they shut they closed down. What we would do is we would fly down to Hollywood to audition or look for an agent. Representation was mm -hmm. the thing. You got representation. You so we would try to get in, you know, and we couldn't. And you know, we were just another actor, you know, trying to get representation. But they would fly up sometimes because it was only like thirty-five dollars round trip back in right. the day uh, to to see us. So all the casting people would fly up because they just heard of this funny, you know, show that was just as funny as Second City, but it's just 35 bucks. They can sleep in their own bed, to, you know, the same day, fly up, get a late night flight, and boom. So um, they could come during the week or whatever. So they would come up and just cast us from the show. No audition. But we were funny in the show. It was our show. We were, it's improv. So uh, um, Penny Marshall came up. They all did. I mean, we, we had a lot of, you know, famous people in the audience. Right. Oh, they flew up. Penny Marshall flew up, and I got a call about three days late. I didn't know this. You don't know who's in the audience until they say after the show, you know, who's in the audience, blah, blah, blah. Uh, uh, I got a call saying, we're from Laverne and Shirley. 
Penny Marshall saw you and uh, there's a role for you that, that she, because her brother and her produced the mm-hmm, show. Right. Uh, so, and she wanted a dance partner, the tall, funny guy in the committee up in San Francisco. Get him down here. So uh, I came down, I did the show and and um, my future uh, agents came to see or saw my show, the show that I was on. And they signed me. They said, oh, hey, you're pretty funny. So and then I had an, I had representation and I just went back. So then it was like it was like the greatest job ever because we were uh, gainfully employed weekly, you know, in the committee up there improv, loving it, you know, n- n- no cops, no nothing. Just <laughs> lines around the block. And then every once in a while, some, you know, casting agent would come up and say, hey, would you be in our show? And we just fly down for a week or a day and come back. So it was the great, best of all possible worlds. Right, you know? right. Media, stage, money, friends, you're living in your own place, no Hollywood, it's up there. Great, you know, hang out. And then finally it closed. And so we all came down because we were making good money. And then you're trapped. And then you're F. You know? <laughs> um, uh, what happens is you, you know what F means see that <laughs> uh, so uh, so f now is going to be oh cops man i just said f no. <laughs> so um i i you you trap because you get enough money to get a really cool apartment but your job is over after the most three months i mean that's how long it makes takes to make a movie so you got all this money and then you don't get another job for six months so that big paid paycheck has got to last you for you know three four five six or until you get another job right you know if you ever try to get a temp job you know how that goes. Right. so it's the same thing plus you're not only temping you're auditioning i always say you know how they say, well, why did you join second? We well, you know, why did you become an actor? Which is, I guess, one of the questions you asked. That's a common question. Right. And they say, well, you know, that's where the money was. That's why I became an actor. And they say, you know, moved down south. Was because the money was incredible. So they, so I likened it to, they said, well, you know, like Willie, Willie, uh, I don't know, the guy said, why do you rob banks? Because that's where the money is. <laughs> really, but a real criminal said that and the papers picked it up it was in the 60s anyway so i thought yeah well would willie rob banks if re- right before he robbed the bank he had to audition first i mean so there's dues to be paid but you're also trapped because now you got to pay rent between big paying gigs so you have to keep auditioning you have to you can't quit it's like you're on a you know and that's that started to rankle me when I discovered that. So I kind of started to. Sure, sure. Um, I used to no. live out there, out in LA. So I understand how that is. I lived in Burbank and then down to NoHo. Yeah, yeah. And, oh, and also, yeah, traveling to the valley to do yeah. an audition or a costume fitting. I mean, in other words, my art form was starting to get on my nerves. <laughs> <laughs> so larry let me ask you what was your favorite role that you played i will let you ask that sure um thank you. uh what was my i get you know the beginning and the end breaking uh, uh escape from alcatraz is, is probably my best and favorite role i was on it for three months i was not yeah i was funny but i didn't know mm-hmm. in, in other words i was so naive it was my, probably my first major major motion picture i did you know, small little things up in San Francisco, but they're just local, you know, shoot, sure. do it for friends. 
But this is major. And I was getting, I think I got like $35,000. That was, I had never seen. I, I'd never been in a discussion where that figure was brought up. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just amazing. So and then it was Clint Eastwood and Don Siegel, you know, really liking right. acting or what I was doing. I didn't know how to act. Kramer, because it was a challenge. He was an icon at the time. And I just wanted to fuck with that. <laughs> I loved when you played Kramer on Seinfeld. I loved it. That was one of well, the- me too. But I mean, that that was the only time where I thought, you know, being an actor, here's the payoff. I, I'm when I got the job. When I, you know, I got the audition. I, I thought I'm going to get to screw around and play a major television icon. I thought that was really. You know, I wanted to see if I could do it. And I thought, you know, we were, me and Michael were friends way before Seinfeld. Because we were always auditioning for the same thing. Because we were tall and kind of looked like brothers. And we even played brothers in a sitcom. I read that about you. Yeah. That's hilarious. that and old Joe, uh, and, and also, so old Joe, yes, Breaking Bad. I was a huge Breaking Bad fan, and you always, even though like your roles, like you always are remembered, like, yeah, you know, know. the come up with the brown robe on, and I mean, it was just <laughs> like people, uh, because my roles, I always kept them small, I didn't want to get involved, right? You know, I didn't, I didn't want to get involved in the game, and I also have dyslexia. So it's hard for me to memorize long sure. speeches. It takes me a long time. And after a while, the roles are starting to get bigger and the speech is bigger to the point where there's a cutoff. Because well, I, the time that it takes me to memorize this is not worth the money. I don't care. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Will you talk about on Breaking Bad? Because I, I do. I read. I mean, I don't know. You well, you know, Vince Gilligan is some sort of magician genius uh, for writing mm-hmm. did you get mad at yeah. him or you got mad at the director at one point because you did have dyslexia and it was harder for you in the beginning well, uh, um it was uh, for brian cranston but uh, see it got yeah i saw it in the press but it, it was not like that <laughs> bob dylan stopped doing interviews they they bend it to make a good story you know yeah. look here's the here's the rule of storytellers since the beginning of time you know if you got to choose between the truth and a good story you're going to tell a good story right. i mean there's no question a, a writer who's doing an interview he's going to cut the the bullshit or the or the true the boring stuff and he's going to leave in the good stuff and the good stuff is generally you know massage right. and there's a lot of uh, you know actors now who won't do any more interviews in other words they do it until they see what the what's going on right. so yeah Brian and I he got mad but it was passive aggressive and it wasn't funny and and I I complained about it because I got nervous because he was such a star and I was just you know, an actor, day player. Right. And, he seemed a uh, big ego. Oh, yeah. So I went to yeah. the director just to calm myself down. I said, hey, he's, sure. he's got an attitude. He won't look at me now. Because why? You know, because I went up on my lines. I forgot my line. Right. He doesn't like that. I, that's my, he didn't say I don't like that. That's my assumption. So, so am I doing anything wrong? I said to the director. And the director said to me, two things, Larry. Got to remember this. One is actors always go up on their lines. And two, fuck Cranston, we're losing the light. Let's finish the scene, okay? <laughs> right. Now, when you were on Breaking Bad there, um, I noticed you kind of had more interactions with Aaron Paul. How was he to work with? 
Oh, he's great, man. We were yeah. going to do a movie together. I guess we still are. Awesome. I mean, I, I brag about that because he's a big star. Yeah, and I'm not. That's great, man. But, but he's great to work with, and we were, we're always talking, or, you know, in between shots, we go, yeah, we should do something together, you know, blah, blah, blah. But, but okay, I'll tell you, this, I don't know if it's in the movie. I know the Cranston stuff is in the book, but uh, in, in El Camino, which is the movie yeah. with Breaking mm-hmm. Bad, right. uh, I get out of the truck, and Vince Gilligan was directing the movie. Right. And he knows character interaction. I mean, which is what great writers do know. The right. truth about interaction, not the truth about one, but about how one reacts with another. So he came up to me, he said, look, you're getting out of the truck. You haven't seen him since back on the TV thing. So there's months, maybe years have gone by since you two have met. So when you get out of the truck, you know, it's like old friends. It's not like he just called you on the phone. And even it was established, he did call me on the phone in a movie. He says, so you got to connect again. You got to reconnect. You haven't seen him in years. That's what he wanted. Mm-hmm. So I got out of the truck and I try to do that. And he goes, no, no, I'll tell you what. Vince Gillian says to me. No, he doesn't. T- Great directors don't give you directions in front of everybody. They take right. you aside and they discuss it with you. So it's kind of nice. And that's what Vince did. And he took me inside and said, look, when you get out of the truck, go up to him and say, hey, he's a kid, right? You know, you're, you're the old guy. He's the kid. He's gotten in trouble again. So come up to him. You now give him a slap on the face, you know. Hey, you know, like don't pinch him on the cheek, but hey, how you doing, kid? You know, that'll like you're an old friend meeting. Cool. That's awesome. What about I, Jonathan uh, Banks? Well, he, well wait a minute. So he goes on. Uh, so I get out of the truck and I'm like, hey, how you doing? And he does does the rest of the scene. He didn't know I was gonna do that, but so he goes over with the rest of the scene. Interesting. Uh, and Vince comes over to me. He says, "No, no, man. I mean, that's like you know, were you afraid of him? You know, a friend. You're a friend. Your buddies, man. We used to drink beer together. No, 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 no. Hey, how you doing? Bam. <laughs> 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 uh-huh, yeah, he can you know, you know, because he's a professional. Professional, you get through the scene. You know, just keep going, man. And, uh, yeah, yeah. And cut. He turns out, what the fuck was that, Larry? <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Well, Vince told me to hit you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Man. But later, uh, you see, that's the, that's the reason I wrote. Oh, the yeah. reality of what's going on is just real people trying to make something totally unreal. I mean, it's all made up. It's pretend. Right. But see, well, you know, on the screen, it's all framed and cut. It's reality. It's coming at you. But when you're doing it, you know, like minute by minute and take by take, it's not magic at all. It's what do you want me to do now? What? You know, you're talking over there. You're looking at the camera. You're going, oh, you know, okay, walk around. It's not anything magic at all you know so uh that's what i always didn't drop was was the reality of stepping into the the scene i always had in mind both this is me pretending to be old joe right but in escape from alcatraz i didn't know enough to be a pretender professional pretender i was always larry hankin i didn't know what the fuck i was doing and the, the director knew exactly who he hired. That was what the audition was all about. John Houston told me that, you know, 
Eighty percent of oh no, what happened? Oh, there you go. Um, no, no, no. Oh man, that's that's all right. But better your phone than ours. Right, right. So, I do have one question for you, Larry. How well do you know Jennifer Aniston? Not at all. Get along with is, oh, I'm disappointed support. now because, uh, you know, I'm looking for ends to get her on the show. Oh, uh, <laughs> well, I don't think you, but yeah, I mean, just ask that I found just, right. you know, yeah. it, 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 it could happen. Right. Yeah, I mean, you I'm using F a lot, man. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I say it normal speech, but I don't, I don't curse this much. In- wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, nobody's ripping the chairs apart. So you know? So maybe that's <laughs> when Jim starts smashing his guitars. We'll worry. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I, Jennifer Anderson. Um, yeah. yeah I, I don't know, but just ask, call her. You know, she's uh, she makes three million dollars a yeah, year. Yeah. She's uh, she, she might be a little out of our our. Uh... No, you can't think that way. You're shutting yourself down. I'm with Larry. Can you put in a good word for us, Larry? Uh, I'll put in a good word for me before I put there you go. <laughs> well, can I come after? But Nicole. Uh, I, I don't know how to get into I, uh, I didn't get along with any of them. I, I really didn't. I was like, a, and then they, they killed uh, Mr. Heckles on the nice. fifth show. Oh. And if you get six, you're, you're recurring and you get a, a huge monetary uh, bump up. Gotcha. And they killed me right before they. Had to pay me more. Wow! And you're always, even though it was only five episodes, it was like you're always there. When you came up, it was just it was hilarious. Well, I yes, you know, I do these cameo things. You know, happy birthday and you know anniversary. Ninety nine point nine percent of all the phone calls I get, well, you're you know fairly regular. They're all Mr. Heckle, and, and it's not advertising Mr. Heckle. It's advertising Larry Jenkins, and I have other fans from other shows that you know send me. You know, so, uh, autographs, right. you know, right. stamp self-addressed. <laughs> uh, and uh, but just on Cameo, I don't I don't understand how it just weeds out. Just ninety nine point nine. Well. But I never got along with, with any of them. I don't know why they just. Uh, well, I do know. why Actually, uh, I, I've been on enough shows, sitcom shows or, 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 or television shows, television where they've been a lo- a, a, together for so long, like two years, seven years, you know, right. five years. So at the end of, you know, when, they, when the director yells cut, the regulars in the scene just huddle up. They just mm-hmm. go and form a little group and they start to talk, you know, mm-hmm. like their family or something. I, I, you know, I, I guess that's okay. Sure. Yeah. Can I ask you a question? But it's about- to get in. I remember one time I tried to, you know, just force my way into their huddle. Right. It was I don't remember what it was. It was a very upscale show, very adults, a lot of adults. So it was a it was a drama, obviously. So I remember I, I said, "Oh, cut!" And I said, "The three major, you know, regulars, they huddled up and they stopped." I think it was four of them, maybe one of the crew or the director or AD huddled with them. But they all knew one another and they had been regular. They were talking about cars. They had just bought cars and they were talking about GPS. GPS had just come in big. Oh, sure. They were talking about they had bought they had bought their cars with GPS included in the dashboard. This is what the subject was. And they said, Oh, what kind of car did you get? Did you have it in the dashboard? Yeah, well, yeah. Well, I had this, but I got the uh, you know, with the two-door. So they were talking like that. So I 
They said, oh, yeah, yeah. And, oh, and they turned to me. They're going to include me in the conversation. So, you know, so Larry, you know, uh, I, I said, oh, we, I have, yeah, GPS is really great. It really helps a lot. I'm really for it. Yeah, I got it. And they go, oh, yeah, what kind of car do you have? And I said, well, I have, uh, I don't remember. I don't know. Can't re- I can't remember. It was a small car. So I said, blah, blah, blah. Do they come with the dashboard uh, GPS? I said, no, no, I bought one of those little things, uh, Best Buy. <laughs> Put it on the dashboard, you know, I suction cup to the... That was me for the conversation. That was it. Mm, they right. just never referred to me again. <laughs> well, kind of- since you're talking about it, can I ask you a question? Because in the media right now, Jennifer Aniston and her, her parties are kind of coming to light. Is any of that? Yeah. You hear any of that on old Hollywood? No, gossip? I didn't talk with any of them the, the entire every show that I ever did. They didn't approach me. I never approached them. Even when I did a scene with, uh, you know, the two girls, the two women, um, the ditzy one and the black girl. Courtney Cox. And What's her and name? Anderson. Courtney Cox. Courtney Cox is the black-haired one. Right. And Gwyneth Paltrow? No. Oh, yeah. yeah. Lisa, Lisa Kudrow. Oh, Lisa, yeah. Lisa, Lisa is really funny. She's, uh, wow, what an actress she is. Comedian, wow. Her timing. Uh, but even when I did the scene with them, the Mr. Heckles with the Bob Buttons, the cat, every time they yelled cut or, you know, or during rehearsal, we were, I mean, I'm, I'm working with them. But I was on the other side of the door. <laughs> yeah, right. literally. Right. Yeah. So they were there, you know, no cat. They couldn't afford a cat during rehearsal. Mm-hmm. Only every oh, the cat was, okay, I get what you're saying. Don't work with children or cats. <laughs> unless you rehearse with you. And they never do, you know, because, well, we can't afford the cat or the kid. Let's just get them there the day we shoot. The kid right. doesn't say anything. The cat doesn't say anything. Fine, just show up. And that cat, did you remember that scene, clawed the heck out of Lisa Kudrow's arm. <laughs> During the scene, the cat, when she handed it to the wrangler, it jumped right. so high and ran. <laughs> we couldn't do the scene a second time. The director said, we have to keep that and print it or we don't use the scene, which was my first scene of the, sh- you know, ever. So I-, I was very worried, but it worked. But if you watch the scene in a rerun, you watch the cat. It is squirming like hell and she's holding it. She's kind of in the dark and the cameraman was trying to get her out of the shot because the cameraman saw that cat doesn't want to be in the machine. I guess, I don't know. <laughs> it wasn't being paid enough. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> but, going, and she's, and, but she's giving her lines and she's acting, she's acting normal. And she, but you can see her hand is not like this. It's like this. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Putting a death grip yeah. on it. After he watched that. Yeah. But just, yeah, in the back. But it was clawing her. And she didn't, you know, she was a trooper, man. Uh, yeah. But see, I was on the other side of the door. So while we were waiting for our cues, even during rehearsal, they would talk and I was just standing there waiting. For, you know, <laughs> right. you know. So, yeah, it's very strange, but that's how it, it, it does work. They get sure. to know one another and they start hanging and then they right. anybody who's just a day player. Was it the same on Seinfeld? Things. Yeah, I never talked to Jerry Seinfeld. I tried once or twice. It really mm-hmm. wasn't working. It was forced, you know. Right. You know, is uh, and and all the other and and I try. I even uh, Michael uh, Michael Ma, uh, Michael Richards. We were friends, you know. I mean, not friends, friends. I mean, we met each other at auditions, you know. But got to talk, uh, and I and I loved him in Fridays, right. that that show. 
but even when I try to help him work out bits, because that's all he did. Uh, that's all Michael Richard does is works on his works on his engines. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He works yeah. on that. Felicia. Oh, yeah. hours. I, I would watch him. He doesn't talk to anybody. He just works on whatever whatever scene he's in. He he he'll work on something about it. You have to go for some you know cereal or open the door right. or enter. You know, that's all he does. Clint Eastwood. You were younger back then, and like you said, you didn't know a lot of things. So how was it working with him? Was no, all he did was put me on both of them. Uh, the 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 director and Clint. That's all they did is put me on, and I. Either fell for it, I try to get out of it or whatever. At one point, I got so, you know, I lost it, man. I just, screw you guys. You know, I, I just, uh, the, the, the crying scene. Okay, give an example of crying scene. At the end, they leave me behind and I'm left in my cell right. all alone. Oh, and then with my wife. So he comes to the director uh, who really liked me. That's why he hired me because I wasn't an actor. I was just me, right. Larry Hank, trying to get a job. And he sensed that. He said, this kid doesn't know how to act. He's just being himself and, and doing lines. And I and that's what he wanted. But he didn't tell me that. He just said, okay, you got the job. And he sent me. I didn't believe him. I said, I don't believe you. I said that. He said, you don't believe <laughs> He asked me. He said, you don't, you don't believe that you have the job. I said, no, I don't. He said, okay. Probably you. surreal feeling. Like, you know, because you're, you're going into, like you say, you're acting. You're you. You're acting. It's like some point, don't they merge? Well, yeah. I mean, what you're talking about is the end result of the process. It's like one of the actors used to tell me uh, when in the committee, she said, I walk me into him, which is what you're mm -hmm. saying. But what right. acting is, you got to relax enough to let that part of you that knows old Joe or Kramer, that is familiar with him. There's everybody, I mean, you're millions of people throughout your day. Whoever you talk to, you go to their level. It's acting. Right. Mm -hmm. But since it's unconscious, you let your, uh, what is it called? Me muscle memory. Muscle memory is it just repeats without thinking. Definitely. But there's also nerve memory which repeats with there's a whole bunch of things that you I mean you don't have to think about blinking no Who, who's, who's controlling blinking but you're blinking at the right time acting is to be able to contact that part of you which is the muscle memory for the character it means you have to be totally relaxed walking me into him there's a process to relax you into that but i larry hankin in escape from alcatraz didn't know about acting process so i was just me i was there to begin with in other words mm -hmm. i was charlie butts charlie butts walked in the door and, right. the, and the director saw it. this guy is who i need to right. be there uh, a foil for clint eastwood's masculine character you know this guy's naive great so they just kept it up and they kept punking me the whole three months and after a while i blew up because um, he would say, like, we were playing cards uh, with the crew in between set right. changes. You have a lot of time. So I was playing cards, poker, and they look up, the, the crew who I was playing with, you know, five other guys, maybe one other actor, and they look up, and there's somebody behind me, and I look up, and it's the director, it's Don Siegel, and he's standing there. When I looked up, he goes, what are you doing, Larry? I mean, like, with urgency and... Trouble. What are, you, what are you doing there? They go, I'm playing poker. You know, I'm, I don't have to shoot for another two hours. So he goes, well, you, you know about you, you know about you know about crying, right? Go, no. What do, what do you mean? So well, this is where they leave you behind. You're in the mm -hmm. cell all alone. You got to be crying in this scene. They, they've left you. 
Uh, it doesn't say that in the scene. <laughs> he said, well, I need you to cry. I, you know, I, I, I need that. Oh, and then, then uh, okay, so that was one where he all of a sudden hit me with something that as an actor, you would just roll with. Oh, okay, got it, you know. But I, so I was like, what do you mean? What do you mean? And, and another time he hits me with, you got to cry in this scene where I, where I talk to my wife. My wife comes and right. we're at the window, you know, and we put her hands up. He says, I need you to cry in that scene. Now, I wasn't prepared at all for that. So that's what he was saying. So he, how did you cry? Would you well, he goes, he says, he says, I, he said, no, you can cry, right? Because he knew he was dealing not with an act. Right. So he said that to me out loud in front of the guys. He said, you know how to cry, right? And I go, no, I do I've never done it. I, I maybe he goes, maybe. No, I don't need a maybe. What I need is you. I need you to cry. Look. And then he says, OK, he says, just go into your dressing room and slap yourself silly until you can cry. That's all I need. And then he walks away very angry. And I thought, oh, man, he's a passport here. You know, he liked me and now I've blown it. And I got, you know, another month here with him angry. I don't know if I can handle it. So I left the poker game and I'm slapping myself in my Room. I'm trying to, I don't know how do actors cry, you know, that process. I don't. So, and then the AD comes in, he says, you know, you're up, let's go. I got to do the scene. And as we're walking to the set, even he says to me, hey, you're going to be able to cry? Like they're talking about it. <laughs> like, hey, you're going to be able to cry? I don't know, man. Right. The pressure is on, right? Yeah. So, I'm they're really bothered. It's really bothering. So when I get to the camera, everybody's crowded around. Whoever, because they know, oh, you know, Larry's going to cry. Because I'm very gregarious in that I'm into everything. I want to see how a movie is made. Right. So everybody in every department knows, even if they don't know, like, <laughs> you know, right. oh, oh, yeah, well, what are you doing? What are you doing? So everybody's wait, waiting around. He says, you ready to cry, Larry? The director says, and I go, yeah. So I know I'm, you know, I'm not going to be able to, and I'm fired. So what I did was, and this I do a couple of times, when I think I'm going to screw up or I don't know if I can do this, I fire myself. I just go, okay, you're fired. You're going to screw it up and you're going to get fired. So there's other jobs. Don't worry about it. A lot of people get fired. Okay, you're fired. All right, let's do this. Now. So now I don't have to worry. I'm fired. I got it all to, to <laughs> right. blah, 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 blah. So I can, I can do it. So that's what I told myself as I'm as he says, you're ready to, to cry. And I go, well, I'm fired. So, so he goes like this. So he, he says, and then he puts the camera like that far from me. And the lens, and this is a big Panasonic, man. And the lens itself is that big. <laughs> so I'm looking at, and I didn't even know they made lenses that big, except for, you know, maybe space travel, you know. <laughs> All right. <laughs> like that, you know. And, and he says, okay, now, Larry, I need you to cry. They've left. Okay, the lefty, you're alone in the cell. Okay, rolling camera and action. Larry, cry. And I go, <laughs> and he goes, okay. And, and he says, okay, cut. Hey, uh, Charlie, bring it in. Charlie comes bringing in one of the crew, a big guy, comes in. And you know these old, um, old-fashioned grandma perfume bottles? Yep. You know, the yeah. cut glass. Get thin, and they got a little tube yep. and a squeeze little bulb right, at the end. Right. <laughs> so Charlie comes in with a a grandma perfume bottle, and he puts it in between me and the camera. He sticks it in there like that, and he goes, 
And his very fine mist just goes right by the camera. And then he says, Larry, cry. He says, camera, Larry, cry. And I go, ooh, and tears come pouring down my eyes, you know, pouring down my eyes. And he goes, one, two, three, cut. Larry, that's great. Everybody applauds. That's great, Larry. Thank you. Perfect. Okay, moving on. All right, one shot, Larry. Very good. One take. We got it. Okay, and he moves on. Very nice. And I go up to him and I said, okay, ha, ha. What the hell was that? And he said, that was wintergreen, Larry. That little bottle of wintergreen has given many, many actresses Oscars. Wow. <laughs> nice. I go, oh, that's what it was all about. Wintergreen in your eyes. And sure. your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> they just want... I mean, they couldn't hit you in the shin or something. Yeah. At the end wow. of their so they, films. Just, they, they just wanted to uh, make fun make fun of you slapping yourself in your uh, dressing room. My face, my cheeks just got red. <laughs> Rosy red. Uh, you can also pinch your nose, I hear, you know, st- yeah, and your eyes will tear up. But I, I didn't get into that. Uh, and I probably would. In other words, I was so frightened, I couldn't co- contact anything about myself, well, you know, really. I, I couldn't even think straight. I just, he, he's going to, you know, the director's mad. <laughs> they will have an all that around you is so unnatural. And then they want you to, you know, so I can't imagine well, assume, what that would feel they like. They something. I mean, you had a, uh, you had to have an, uh, an agent to get the audition. So they assume you're an actor, right. you know, you know, the, but I always got by with my my talent, which is not, my, in other words, my improvisational ability to like do something quick, which you learn on stage. But right. that's not what movie acting is about. Movie acting is improv, but it's a different kind of improv. It's a right. process improv. It's it's not a joke, instant pressure. Right now, with your uh, career, with your career spanning uh, both film and TV, do you have a preference for one medium over the other? Oh, stage, no, no, uh, no, no question. Or my own movies, or my yeah. own movies, because I want, I want to tell, I want to run tell that. Right. About what's in my head, I, I don't, I don't give a rat's ass for what's in your head. <laughs> um, I, I, I no, and I'm, I'm studying. You know, I got this book. You know, and it's a memoir, mm-hmm. a cautionary memoir about you know what's real and what's not real. Right. What's not real is what you see. What's real is what I do, and there's no connection. I have no connection to what I see on the screen. Right. I have only connection about. You know, there's a microphone here, there's a camera there, there's a guy talking to me there, there's somebody talking to me here. I got to remember what I got to say. That's my reality, man. And I got to put it all together and be calm. And that's not what you see at all. You're seeing, you know, me and, you know, Afghanistan having a beer. I don't know, you know, whatever it is. So it's very different. Until you get used to it, and then you start putting it together, and then it's normal. Right. And so out of all the big stars you've worked with, or maybe some that you just know, who's like your favorite? My favorite star? You want me to say that out loud and have a career? <laughs> oh, I love them all. Uh, they're also, uh, well, no, I mean. Um, maybe one that you're friends with. Uh, uh, Aaron Paul is probably my, but now wait a minute. Are you talking about favorite actor to work with, a favorite actor to, you know, watch and my icon, my favorite guy? You know, to work with is Aaron Paul, uh, Brian Cranston, the great ones, the, 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 the better and more famous Clint Eastwood, the better and more famous and the longer they've been around actors, 
the more favored I because they roll with everything. Here, here's the secret. I found the secret, well, of Clint Eastwood's acting anyway, and it's just a good way to grow. What he does is, because all my scenes were with Clint Eastwood. He's one of the few actors where oh, I was always working with the same actor and he was just my icon anyway. So I would just not only be Charlie Butts, but I'd be Larry thinking, so this is how he does it. And how he does it is really simple. He uses your energy and all the good ones do. They float on, it's like a cork. They go cork. Where I go relax, they go cork. And what they do is they let you lead the scene or they let you think you're leading the scene. And then they just use your energy and they just float on it. You know, if I go, hey man, with, well, okay. hey man, they take that energy and they use it. They either use it to stay right with you or they use it to just go under you or generally they just float above you. But it's not their energy. It's it's they got the character and they just use it. It's reaction, not action. Right. You react. Acting is reacting. It's not acting. And most new neophytes are acting. And so great actors realize that and use it. Oh, I don't have to work at all. This is where the scene is. This kid is laying this out. It's at this level. Okay, so I'll just, uh, I'll, I'll be here. Or I'll, no, I'll totally ignore right. it and be here through my character. But it gives you a range if you use what's right. coming at you instead of working to, you know, I got to push. The right. So, but I learned it from from Clint, man. No matter what I would do, he would just easy peasy. Right. <laughs> you just take it and use it. Take it and use it. That was amazing. So now you're an author, not just an actor. Now you're an author. How did that come about that you decided to write the book? Well, I'm an I'm an orf orphan. You're on your own, man. <laughs> you sit in a room and you go, what? what you know, what's the next right. word? Uh, you know, what's the next? You're on your own. Um, it's it's totally different, and it's a different. Uh, I had a, you have to learn all. Or, well, me anyway. That's what. I have to start from scratch. You just have to learn. So it's like me trying to get representation for a book, you know, agent or, or a book publisher. And you have to make calls and write letters. And it's like auditioning. You know, you, you go through, you know, say 60s to 60s, 40, 20, 60 years, 50, 60 years of, of well, maybe 40 years of auditioning and 20 years of just riding a wave. You know, hey, would you be in my movie? Yeah, uh, and then all of a sudden you're you're all, you're just starting all over again, like auditioning, right. learning. But it's books, and it's even we you know like eighty percent of book readers are women. You got to learn that. Uh, you you can't say memoir if you mean biography. You can't say fiction if you mean memoir. You 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 can say this if it's memoir. You can't say it if it's say biography. It's got to be this many pages. You got to say this in the, you got to have a synopsis. I mean, right. on and on. It took me six months to write it and a year to get it published after well, I wrote. And I, I didn't, I would never have written it had I known what I had to do once. <laughs> I yeah. I, I'm, yeah I'm Not sure. easy. No, but, no. Uh, it, it's, it's just you're on your own. You are. Right. Annoyed. Thank you very right. much for for me, for saying something I yeah, missed. Oh, no, that's okay. Um, but, so what but, inspired you to write the book, Larry? 
Well, I didn't. I just for two reasons. One, the the major reason was these were these were stories that I would tell when I got home. When I when I came home from school in in kindergarten, public school, public school, many public. I would, you know, my mom would say, you know, hey, how is school today, Larry? I mean, just a standard, you know, mom question to their right. son. And she would let me just rattle on about what I did at school, you know. And she she thought it was really, well, at least she convinced me she thought it was really great. So that's when I would act. I would come and say, tell my roommate or tell my girlfriend or tell, you know, the guys in the bar, you know, hey, my dad, I would tell these stories. And they all worked. And then I would start to tell them on stage in my one-man shows when I was making money and could afford to hire a theater, right. a small little black box, you know, right. 100-seat theater. And uh, it started to work on stage. And I thought, I better write these down because I'm going to forget them. So that's what where the book came from. I started to write them out, you know, put them down, rec record them. I would record my show, and then I would have a, a... Microsoft has an app that if you feed the tape into the uh, app, it'll it'll print it out. It'll print out your voice. So oh, that's like voice to text. That some yeah. things don't come out right, I learned. Well, yeah, but in, uh, for mine, well, I, I hired a guy who, who would do that, who would kind of clean it up, yeah. and, and he would send me the dirty version and I would clean that up. I mean, that that would be the written version. He would get he would get rid of the ums, the right. herbs, the the misspellings or the weirdness. He would just do that, just a quick pop, 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 and then he would send it to me. So at least it was printed, and then I would make sense out of it. In other words, I would tell the story on on, on page. So you right. weren't writing it; you were actually talking and kind of reliving a lot of it. Well, I would re-talk it. I would go, oh, I I see, but this is too long. I was just riffing in between jokes, in between laugh, laugh line. Gotcha. I would extend it because I was talking to an audience. They were there. I could tell if they got interested, I would just drop it. But you're handing a book out to somebody you'll never see. So you don't know where they get bored. Or, so you better make it tight and forget the side trips. So in all the writing books I, I've read and, and all the you know classic books I've read because I'm a writer, uh, they all say the same thing. When you finished it, just know you're going to cut 10%. That's it. Just if you wrote 100 pages, just get rid of 10. Now, I remember, who, who's the guy, uh, who the famous guy? Roger Corman. Roger Corman was the classic of this. He was shooting his movie. He was shooting his movie. He had the script. He was directing, you know, and he goes, and the guy who put up the money was on the set. You know, this is one of these cheap uh, bike biker movies or horror mm -hmm. movies, you know. So, he's, you know, he's going to blah, blah, blah. And I think it was, you know, one of these two-week wonders. Where you, you can shoot an entire movie in one week. So he's doing it, and the producer comes up, the guy who put up all of the, you know, $100,000 or $75,000. And he goes, hey, you know, you're supposed to be, um, you're supposed to be shooting on page 90 or something. You know, we're getting behind. You know, I can't afford to extend this any more than the two weeks. So Roger Corman, he, he goes like this. He goes, just, you know, randomly take <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> we're back on schedule. So that's, um, you know, the that's the gist of get rid of 10%. Now, if you really want to be, you know, a major book writer, you know, major seller, and you go through it or you know, audacious. I don't know what, uh, well, you go through a very, right. what's the word? I don't know the word. But just very specifically, and you cut out so that adds up to 10 or 15 pages or whatever. But generally it's, you know, you build the stone and then you carve. So right. you write the stone, you know, the 
Chiara marble, get it down from Chiara mountains, give it to Michelangelo. (laughs) Go for it. Nice. He frees the angel inside of the stone. That's what you got to do. Right. We'll be making a movie. Shit like that. You got to write a book at it. See a movie in the future about the book? uh, Yeah, I'm writing another book now, but but I couldn't do what I did. That was just a one-off. I mean, that book, that guy, I don't think, because it's half, it's all memoir, but that means it's all first person singular. That means it's all from my point of view. There's no, but I thought he might be. There's no, there's no thinking, there's no projecting. It's only, if I say, I, I was talking to Nicole the other day and she said, blah, blah, blah. And another person says, I'm going to sue you because she never said that. Or you said, I'm going to sue you because I never said that. You have to say, it's my understanding with a conversation I had with Nicole. No. no. See, I said it was a memoir. So in a memoir, all I have to, all you have to know, all I have to write is that I I was talking to Nicole. And she said, and if you say, no, I didn't say that. I said, well, that's what I remember. This is a memoir. It's I'm writing my memory of what mm-hmm. happened. Yep. I can be wrong in court. That counts. Well, <laughs> I didn't. You know, that's all the politicians. That's what right. they're doing. They're telling memoirs. Yeah. But if, but if somebody else says no, and you swore to it, then ah, you're lying. You know, it's corroborated. And uh, if somebody, but since it's coming through me, nobody else can corroborate what's coming through my mind. So you're telling the truth is what you're well, saying. Well, it doesn't matter if I'm telling the truth. I'm telling my memory. I'm telling my side mm-hmm. of the argument. Now you come along and say, no, I didn't say that. That's your side of the argument. But right. if I say I'm writing a biography and I say, and Nicole said, no, then I have proof. I have to have somebody else corroborate. Yeah, I heard the same thing. Or you have to say, no, here's a recording. I didn't say anything like that. Mm-hmm. In other words, proof is on the biography side. So it's all about yeah. litigation. You just have to, I mean, so you, well, you're you writing a recording. And I didn't know any of that. Like I didn't know going into Escape from Alcatraz. So when the book came out and I signed a contract and the book came out, then and only then when the book came out did I have to go back and look at the contract and say, Oh, shit, I should have. Oh, I should have asked for it. Oh, my God. Because, you know, I was so focused on getting it published. Right. That I just signed the contract. You know, I didn't go to a lawyer. I thought, no, I just got to get it out. You know, sure. a year, sure. wait a year. You know, you're all jacked up. I got to get this done. I got to yeah. move on. Now, now Larry, you, you've had an incredible career in film and TV spanning several decades. What do you think has been your key to longevity in the industry? Stupidity, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, okay. I just uh, didn't know what I was in for. Sure. Had I known it would be this way. Uh, but like I say, I get fired on anything else that I do. I mean, I, you know, I had temp jobs when right. I left college and, you know, uh, bussing bars, you know, cleaning up fucking peanut shells um, and, and going to coffee houses until 2 a.m. Or sitting in a bar eating right. peanuts until 2 a.m. so I can clean up. It, it was just that I didn't know what to do. I knew what I didn't want to do. That right. was my compass. And that's not a way to go right. reading my book. I just knew that I didn't want to go to college. I didn't want to, uh, you know, machinery and that calculus. Didn't want to go to Detroit. Didn't want to be a car designer. 
Right. I didn't want to sit in the cubbyhole. I didn't want to be a writer. I, I didn't know how to write. Mm -hmm. uh, and I thought I was funny. So I go up on stage. It was free. You get three to five minutes and you pass the hat. You can't live off of that. So I had to have temp jobs, you know, during the day. Right. And sleep a couple hours and then go, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I was, I didn't get fired getting up on the stage. People laughed. I mean, I wasn't that funny in the beginning, but after about six months, you know, a guy walked in and said, Hey, you want representation? Representation. Holy cow. The golden <laughs> ring. You know, I wasn't looking to get rich. He says, You want, I right. go, Yeah. He says, Well, here's my card. If anybody asks, you got representation. And that night I bragged about it. That was something to brag about. Right. So at the bar, you know, I told everybody, you know, hey, man, I got representation. Everybody, hey, everybody, you know, you know, scold me. <laughs> Larry got representation. Who'd you get? That's the next question. Right. And I didn't know who I got. So I just pulled out the card and said, his name is Jack Rollins. And they all dropped dead. <laughs> I didn't know. But Jack Rollins was Woody Allen's manager. And Woody Allen was starting to. He was doing TV and stuff. And I go, holy cow. I mean, that's right out of the right. box, man. Right. He's a big star. He's a star manager. Right. Like, you know, Ryan was a star actor. Jack Rollins. And he got me. He was booking me in a Playboy club. He was booking me with the, you know, the Kingston Trio. And um, was it uh, Miles Davis? Right. So, yeah. But how did I get it? I didn't choose. I just kind of fell into it. You know, Carl, mm -hmm. where are you going? Greenwich Village. Okay, let's go. I didn't want to be an actor. Sure. I just wanted to get to Greenwich Village and get out of the house and away from Syracuse in Detroit. So I wouldn't, you know, that if, I, if I'm... You're listening and want to be an actor. You can't, mm -hmm. you can't do it my way. There is no. It's crazy. When I worked out there, everybody would say, are, are you in the, I can't remember how they'd word it, industry. And I was like, what? What does that mean? You know, what does that mean? But usually they were working during the day, busting mm -hmm. tables, doing, going to auditions. I mean, it was like very time consuming. I mean, it's not well, just something, you know. Well, it's different now. And it's been different since 1999, December 12th. 1999 <laughs> it changed right after that uh, because when i started i could do that and one could do, one could be a person like me who was in my situation telling carl can i be your roommate if you're going to greenwich village now that's what started and the reason i wanted to be his roommate and go to greenwich village was that night i got in a fight <laughs> a terrible fight graduation night a terrible fight where i almost had to go to the hospital i didn't but I should have, but I got in a terrible fight and I started it. So I couldn't go. <laughs> I mean, my arm was dislocated. Uh, my head was uh, almost had a concussion, um, bruised ribs. I mean, I was a, a major fight, you know, like in the old days. Right. But it was the old days and you could heal, go to summer stock just, just because Carl went to summer stock and I said, Hey, Carl, and he's my best friend. He said, you're, you're fucked. You can't do anything. You can't. I was right. lucky, and this was the arm that was dislocated. And even when they put it back in place, I still couldn't hold a pen very well. Right. So I had to just uh, hang out in, in Summerstock with him and design. I designed sets, but I didn't have to draw them. I could just, well, my, my hand was healing, but I could tell the, the, the crew who built the set. So I could hang out in those days. Nowadays, it's a businessman. You have to have a businessman's mindset to be an actor today. And right. if you ask me how to be an actor today, knowing what I know with 50 years behind me, 
I couldn't tell you, man. I, I couldn't do it. I would probably relate to it like I related to uh, Detroit. Right. It's cubby holes and auditions. I, I just, um, it's it's digital. It's, it's you don't have, audition, audition like I'm talking to you on Zoom. You audition on Zoom. So there's nobody telling you, well, do it a little different, do it a little different. Now, in right. one way, you control totally your, your audition. Now that you do it your way and you send it in your way. Now I always used to rankle by doing it my way and then they would tell me well i do it another way do it my way do it their way right you know, roll and I, I go hey man i came here i memorized it i did all the work for my way i didn't know about see improv in acting you do it your way and then you do it another way you do it their way and there's a process to do it their way and your way but it's not improv it's superficial you have to go a little deeper a little more serious one more time right and uh, I would rankle at that. And it took me a long time to actually understand what auditions were, you know, understanding what writing a book and writing a fiction book and an autobiographical book right. or, or a help, a uh, self-help book. They have it all pigeonholed and you just can't sit down and write anything you want and send it out. Uh, it doesn't work. Well, hey, Larry, um, we're going to we're going to cut this off. And you you definitely have a long career. We could go a long time with this. <laughs> yeah, it turned out long yeah. time. But anyway, ago. so yeah. we want to thank you for being on here. And um, we're going to have a link to Amazon. Uh, for your book, that'll take people right to uh, where your book, they can get your book on Amazon. And when you go to order that on Amazon, just type in three famous guys in the uh, section where you get a discount and you will not get a discount because we're not set up. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but but give me a, give me a gold star. And I'm going to, I'm going to definitely get you a book. So anyway, with that, uh, we also want to let everybody know that we have a, there'll be a link to our backstage, which is a, a site you can go on and sign up to hear and see some uh, content from the three famous guys that no one else gets to see or hear. So go ahead and do that. Go to threefamousguys.com and also watch out for our three famous guys coffee that's coming out very soon as well. Um, so that'll be beans, ground coffee, as well as pods. So Wow, that's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's better than the book. That's <laughs> <laughs> they kind of go hand in hand, though. You guys, you guys know business. Well, as soon as we get rich, we'll uh, come out and uh, uh, take you out to dinner. So anyway, well, hey, I'm going to play our outro, uh, Larry, but don't go away yet. Okay, don't cut the beginning no. of this. But whatever you do, don't go away till uh, till this music's done. So anyway, we just want to thank you. Yeah. Love you, Larry. But, uh, All right. Thank you. All right. So yeah. this is Gus, Jim, and uh, uh, Mark, like I say, and Nicole. Mark's gone. So uh, anyway, <laughs> there's three famous guys. We're out of here. Thanks for checking out Three Famous Guys. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss a future episode. For more information or to try and uncover more about your mystifying hosts, check them out online at www.3famousguys.com. That's www.3famousguys.com. We'll see you next time.